The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. Naturalistic planning design begins with understanding what roles certain plants play in nature. One of the most useful concepts in a plant survival strategy is learning how to classify it on the Grimes Triangle. This is a new concept for me, and I don't remember ever hearing about this classification system or how it works. We talk about this and more in this episode 71, Success with Naturalistic Plantings, with our guest, Jared Barnes, Ph.D. Dr. Jared started gardening when he was five years old. Since then, he has enthusiastically pursued how to best cultivate plants and cultivate minds. He currently fulfills his passions as an award-winning associate professor of horticulture at Stephen F. Austin State University in Nacogdoches, Texas. Dr. Jared obtained his Ph.D. in horticultural science from North Carolina State University in Raleigh, North Carolina. He interned at the Scott Arboretum of Swarthmore College in Pennsylvania. By traveling around the U.S. and to 11 countries, he has gained national and global horticultural perspectives. Jared educates the public with his weekly newsletter, Plant Ed, and his monthly podcast, Plantastic, all found on Maristem Horticulture. His passion has been recognized by peers in interviews in Organic Gardening, Greenhouse Grower, American Hort Connect, Ken Druce's Real Dirt, and Nursery Management. His articles have appeared in the American Gardener, Fine Gardening, and Carolina Gardening. We'll talk with Dr. Jared after this. You're invited to engage with us on Instagram at the Garden Question Podcast. If you'd like to email me directly, the address is question at thegardenquestion.com. That's question at thegardenquestion.com. Please remember, your ratings and reviews are always appreciated. Jared, what is naturalistic planting? Naturalistic planting is where we are emulating nature to plant better. Our goal is to go out and look at how plants grow in the wild study that, and then bring that back into our garden. If you look at a lot of gardens, what you'll see is is that you've got plant, 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 and then copious amounts of mulch underneath. Problem with that is, is, is that you've got a lot of open space there, and Mother Nature hates bare soil. She hates it. She really wants to cover bare soil with plants. What starts happening is you start to have a lot of weeds germinate in that space. What we're doing naturalistic planting is we are looking out at how plants grow in nature. You know, because if you go out in a meadow or a prairie or a woodland type environment, you don't just find three plants growing in a square yard surrounded by mulch. Instead, you usually find hundreds of plants, especially if you go out in like a grassland environment growing in that small space. What we're doing with naturalistic planting is we're trying to use ideas from nature to grow plants better in our gardens. For example, covering the ground with plants, covering the ground with green mulch, so that that way we can cover that soil and reduce our maintenance. How does the green mulch prevent seed germination? The way that the green mulch works is like, let's say you're doing some low ground cover like Carex or something else like a low growing grass like Sprobolus, which is prairie drop seed, or Budalua some of these native grass species that we grow. The idea is, is that if you have bare soil, that light is hitting that soil. And chances are there are seeds within that seed bank there that can then germinate and begin growing in those type of conditions. Another thing too that prompts seeds to start germinating, especially weeds, is the presence of nitrogen. Nitrogen is one of the things that really encourages weed seeds to germinate. 
for example, when you're growing plants in a nursery setting, some growers will actually take and put the fertilizer underneath the plant that they're about to pot up into because that way they're not putting the nitrogen up at the top. Therefore, the weed seeds have less access to that nitrogen up there. That's one of the ways that we can try to cover the ground is by using green mulch. Another thing that we can do, too, is try to make the site more stressful. This is where some of these ideas in naturalistic planting are coming from, about planting directly into a sand layer or into a gravel layer. The idea is, is that we're making the soil surface more stressful for those weed seeds to try to germinate and begin growing because your plants can actually grow down through that substrate. It's only like four to six inches deep but they can grow down through and root down through that, usually you have trouble with the weeds getting established on top of that surface. And this is something we see out in nature, that a lot of times plants have competition that occurs out in nature. A lot of times plants also have stress and disturbance. We're just trying to figure out ways to capitalize those processes in the garden. Am I hearing you correctly on this? You're putting four inches of sand down and then planting the plants? In some cases, yes. That is one way that we can approach naturalistic planting. The goal here is, and I'm going to kind of give an overview of this really quickly to kind of explain where we're coming from. When you're doing naturalistic planting, what you're doing is you're trying to understand how the plants grow. There was this interesting researcher whose name was Philip Grime. He came up with this idea, Grime's Triangle. I'm sure a lot of your listeners have heard of the soil triangle, sand, silt, and clay. Mm -hmm. What Grime said was that at the base type of plant growth, we have what we call a competitor. What competitors are is, is that they are plants that are very, very effective at using ample resources to grow. So think of plants like Jopai weed. Think about plants like Panicum or switchgrasses. Think about plants like Monarda, bee balm. A lot of people have issues with bee balm colonizing and taking over their garden beds. The reason why they do that is is that these plants are very effective competitors. What that means is is that they're very quick to use the resources that the environment throws at them to grow very, very quickly, compete out everything else, and shade everything else out. So competitors are kind of at the top of this triangle. On one side of the triangle, let's say the left side, all of a sudden we start introducing stress to a site. Stress could be things like the sand layer or gravel layer could also be things like high pH or low pH in the soil, could be drought, could be competition, things that are going on at that site to reduce the success. Suddenly we have stress that's increasing. As we begin to put stress on plants, they begin to adapt and evolve in different ways. One of the things that stress tolerators, that's the second category we can talk about, sort of at the bottom lower left-hand side of this triangle. So what stress tolerators do is, is that their strategy is, okay, This site is stressful. There's only going to be ample growing conditions, short time of period during the year. What I need to do is I need to come up with a way to very effectively use those resources that I have available so that I can tolerate this stress that the environment is throwing at me. With stress tolerators, what we see them typically do is, is that they typically take multiple years before they will ever flower, but they oftentimes will form some type of storage organ. Think of the plants out there that have storage organs, basically some way to go dormant for part of the year. Narcissus and bulbs, crocus and corms, even butterfly weed or lovely Asclepius that the monarchs feed on. It has a massive storage root as well, too. Part of the reason it has a storage root is because you've got monarchs coming in and eating you down. You need to have a way to regenerate quickly. That's stress tolerators. From competition, we have increasing stress. The third category, we're on the right side of the triangle now. Whenever we start increasing disturbance on the site, because besides stress, which again is things like drought, freeze, heat, those type of things, what disturbance is, is it's where you suddenly have an environment disturbed. What does that mean? Think back in time when bison used to roam the earth in the North American continent. You know, you would have them come along herds, thousands thick. They would cause a lot of disturbance. Think about floods as well, too, that come through and scour an environment, removing the vegetation there. Think about things like windstorms and fires. These type things are what we call disturbances. What they do is they basically go through and either remove all the vegetation off the top or they remove both the vegetation and part of the soil underneath. These plants that evolved in these type situations said, okay, we have a very short time period to grow before we're going to die from one of these disturbances that are occurring. So what we need to do is we need to figure out a strategy to evolve so that that way we can survive whatever Mother Nature is going to throw at us. If you're going to live for a very short period of time, it makes sense that you would want to grow very fast and sow seed very rapidly. 
This is where we have a lot of our pioneer species, our ruderals, which ruderal basically means like a plant that germinates and grows in uh, ruinous, like gravelly areas. So these are these type of species. And this group is what we classify as the ruderals. People can also call them pioneer species. These three corners of the triangle are what composes all different types of plant growth strategies. I was kind of anthropomorphizing. You know, plants just did not wake up this morning and say, oh, I'm going to put down a stress tolerator bulb or, oh, I'm going to suddenly start setting seed. Instead, this is thousands, millions of years of evolution acting upon them. What's cool is, is that just like you can classify soil by looking at a soil triangle, we can also classify plants by, again, looking at this Grimes triangle. Not all plants are 100%. It's rare that you find a plant that has a 100% growth shirt. Let's go back to Asclepius tuberosa. It has that orange milkweed, has that storage organ root. And another thing too is, is that it produces copious amounts of seed. Probably what I would do is I would pin that plant somewhere down where it was maybe, I don't know, like let's say 60% stress tolerator, 40% ruderal or pioneer type growth habit. This goes back to your question, so what? Who cares about all this stuff? Well, Whenever we're looking at naturalistic design, there are multiple ways that we can either stress the environment or that we can disturb the environment to take advantage of a wider diversity of species. One of the things that fascinated me growing up, I was born and raised in western Tennessee. We were about an hour from the Mississippi River. I would go out in the spring and I would look for these wildflowers. I would look and look and I would really struggle to find some. Because I'd have these wildflower books that said native to Tennessee, but I could never find these things. I find like may apples and woodland flocks and trout lily. I found a few things here and there, but it just wasn't the diversity. But if you went either west toward the Ozarks or east towards Nashville, all of a sudden the diversity started going up. And I was like, why in the world is this happening? Later on, I realized that what was going on is that... In the area we grew, the soils were very, very fertile. I mean, we had corn, soybeans, wheat growing right next to our house and always had good crops. What was happening is, is that the soils in those areas were so fertile that the competitors were outcompeting other species to allow room for diversity to come in and take place. If you kind of look at how some of these species curves go, what we see is, is that if you provide your garden plants way too much resources, what happens is, is that a lot of times your diversity of plants, your richness of the number of species that you can get in there goes down because the monardas, the panicums, the other things are kind of choking them out. What we can do is we can stress by planting plants in sand and gravel. We can stress by reducing the amount of irrigation. We can stress by going in and doing some soil amending that maybe makes it more acidic, more alkaline. We can also do disturbance. That's something that's fascinated me lately is, is that I've seen examples of people go in and mow gardens and cut down plants at certain times of the year. Everybody talks about the Chelsea chop where you go in in May and cut plants down to the ground. That's a type of disturbance. What you're doing is you're removing that foliage from the top of the plant to allow it to then be shorter and less bushier. So instead of it growing up, falling over and smothering other plants, it stays more compact. You have gotten into areas I have no clue. <laughs> <laughs> And this is all brand new to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know I was like, I'm talking for a while, I'm talking for a while, I'm talking for a while. I hope that he doesn't get overwhelmed by all this. <laughs> I'm following you. I've never heard of the Grimes Triangle before. Yeah. I'll tell you this, Craig. Whenever I learned about this, I was like, this is it. This is what I've been looking for my whole life. For me, I really enjoy understanding how plants grow best. And whenever I learned about Grimes Triangle, I was like, oh my goodness, where has this been my whole life? Because this explains so many things, Craig. It explains why we have issues with monardas running wild in the garden and other things like goldenrods. Goldenrods are very active competitors. They love to spread out, but they also love to set copious amounts of seed. Explain other things to me too, like, for example, gallardia, the blanket flowers. One of the complaints people have about those is, is that, oh, you know, I plant them and two or three years later, they're dead. Yes, they're pioneer species. They're these rural species that are only supposed to live for a year or two, just like our native red columbine here in the east, Aqualegia canadensis. That's another one too that only lives for a couple of years typically. It sets copious amounts of seed and then it just kind of peters out. Or also bulbs. I was always like, why is it that it takes these daffodils and these trillium? You know, that's another example. It doesn't just have to be a bulb. It can be something rhizomatous. But I was like, why is it that it takes these trilliums three to seven years to flower from seed? That's such a long time. Well, the reason why is because think about it. If you're a trillium growing in the forest understory, 
the canopy is going to close over you pretty quick. Not having enough light to grow, that's a huge stress. Don't believe me? Sow some tomatoes and try to put them in the window of your house. It's a huge stress to have on you if you don't have enough light. Their adaptation has been, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to grow, flower, and set seed, and then we're going to go dormant. And then next year, those seed will germinate, and they'll come out. They'll use as much light as they can while they can in the six to eight weeks before the canopy closes or sooner. And then they'll go dormant. They use those short periods of time to eventually get up to the point where they can flower. And it applies to woody species, too. Think about our sumacs, our rust species. They, they kind of tend to be a little bit more of the competitor sign because it's still a little bit rhizomatous. Mm-hmm. Others tend to be very ruderal. I don't know about y'all, but I've had tons of willow trees sowing seed in my yard, kind of a little bit more seedy. Whereas other species play the long game. They wait years and years, like some of our majestic hickories and oaks, maybe years before you ever see a flower on them. They kind of take their time a little bit more on that. Yeah. Well, where do you find out where your plant falls on the Grimes Triangle? Because I don't remember seeing that in Durr or Armitage's books. That is a really great question because Grimes Triangle comes to us more from ecology. To me, that's the thing we're doing with naturalistic planting is we're trying to bring in these ideas of ecology into horticulture to make horticulture more sustainable and long-lasting. There are research papers out there that break that down, but I will tell you this, Craig. I teach this concept to students in class, and one of the things that we do as a lab activity is we play a game called Pin the Plant on the Triangle. (laughs) (laughs) I'll go ahead and say this. Grimes Triangle works a whole lot better with our herbaceous plants than our woody plants. Okay. Most of our woodies tend to fall more in the competitor side of things because that's what they're used to doing. They're used to growing big and tall and competing everything else out. Granted, they don't always have as much rhizomatous structures coming off of them. Think about aspens. Aspens can be clonal. There's that giant clonal colony pando out in the Rockies. Mm -hmm. What I have students do is I have them research a plant, learn about how does it set seed? Does it have a storage organ? Does it have rhizomes? Rhizomes are a key giveaway that it's a competitor. If you see a clump forming type plant that produces copious amounts of seed, that tends to be more indicative that maybe it's a stress tolerator or maybe even a ruderal. Copious amounts of seeds always typically tend to be pioneer species ruderal species. And then your stress tolerators are plants that typically have some type of storage organ and go dormant during some part of the year. What I have students do is is that I have them research the plants and then we come up to the front of the class, pin the plant where we think it roughly goes. Just like you have tests to adequately say your soil texture is like sandy loam while doing the ribbon test and other types of hand techniques on it. We can also assess this, but usually that falls more into the scientific literature. To me, I tell students that it's best to understand from the competitor standpoint. Competitors, again, typically have rhizomatous growth structures. Also, another thing to look for in competitors, if they have bare legs, think about things like Joe Pye weed. Think about how Joe Pye weed grows, how it typically has very few leaves down at the bottom, but up at the top, it's got a massive foliage. Or even Baptisia, or wild indigo that erupts and comes out in the spring. Think about how high that foliage typically is. It's usually about 12, 18, 24 inches up off the ground. That's another one that is kind of used to competing because it has to kind of grow up through this mass of foliage. And then again, on the ruderals, pioneer species, short-lived species that die, set copious amounts of seed. And then on a stress tolerators, usually have some type of storage organ, typically take multiple years before they flower. Students will sometimes kind of mix them together and say, if you look at, I don't know, Hosta. Hosta. Okay, yeah. Hosta is a great example. So hosta is a low foliage growing plant. It typically tends to cover the ground, but it also forms dense colonies. Let's say that hosta probably falls a little bit more in between competitor and stress tolerator than ruderal because hostas live for very, very long periods of time. So I don't know about you, but here in Texas, our hostas are really starting to feel it by the end of the growing season. Oh, and yeah. I'm sure you're the same way. Mm-hmm. What they do is they grow and use the light available to them early on in the year. Then usually towards the end of the year, they're already starting to go dormant. Now, what we at horticulture have done is we tried to select versions of those plants that maybe last a little bit longer in the season or maybe have different colored foliage that allows them to last. Most plants will fit into one of these three categories. Yeah, they have to get it real quick where I live because the deer usually chop them off, but they come back. (laughs) That's what we call disturbance. (laughs) (laughs) You gave us some keys on how to classify a plant on the Grimes Triangle. Someone hasn't made it simple by compiling a Grimes Triangle shortcut list of classifications. 
No, unfortunately not. I think that's one of the things that I enjoy doing is learning about how plants grow so that I can better educate people on those topics. I will say, though, that there's other things in natural design besides just Grimes Triangle. Another concept is this sociability. Sociability is this concept where if you go out and look at plants in nature, you will see that they tend to have some type of growth habit. For example, Baptisia. A lot of times you typically don't see Baptisia massed all together in one big grouping. You'll see Baptisia randomly scattered out in a field. However, on the other side, if you're looking at plants, you have other species that are ground covers where it would just look weird if you put some type of species that was a ground cover on the ground, you know, maybe a jasmine or a Virginia creeper, it would look weird if you just had one of them planted there by itself. It just wouldn't look right. This idea of sociability is also thinking about how do plants grow in nature and then putting that into gardens. Because sometimes we see that people will do that in gardens. Like, for example, you had a whole parking lot full of switchgrass, which typically tends to grow more as isolated clumps. It just kind of looks weird. Instead, what we want to do is have the switchgrass scattered out in amongst different types of perennials. We try to capitalize on that too. Some of my friends and colleagues, what they've done is they've tried to clean this up to talk about how do we bring in these concepts of Grimes Triangle in along with these ideas about sociability and ecological design. They've come up with this idea that whenever you're doing a naturalistic planting, you do it in layers. The bottom layer is what we call the ground cover layer. Ground cover layer is the idea is it's this living mulch, this green mulch. It's species that you plant low that cover the ground to prevent other weeds from germinating. A lot of times you have to prep the site good beforehand. You either have to come through and do some herbicide applications to kill everything there, some tilling to bring that stuff to the surface to really reduce your weed populations. Because if you just try to go and do this on a garden bed has had very little prep, you're going to really struggle. I've also heard about people doing the sand gravel approach where you're planting it into those type of amendments. Another approach is you can come in and do some type of thick mulch, try to keep the weeds down. And I've heard all three of these approaches. Other colleagues of mine, what they'll do is plant their perennials. And then the green ground cover layer that they install is a quick growing annual like crimson clover that will come in, carpet the ground, prevent any weeds from germinating and growing while those perennial plugs are getting a chance to get established. That's the ground cover layer. Into the ground cover layer, we then plant our design layers. A lot of times people start first with what we call the anchor species or your primary plants, your structural plants. These are going to be the plants that have long season of interest, your Joe Pye weeds, your switch grasses, even shrubs like Dumax, Russes as well too can work. The idea is, is that you're not going to come into this ground cover layer and plant the whole thing with Joe Pye weed. That would just look weird because again, it would be way too smothering. You would not be able to see through it. Instead, it would be nice to have them kind of scattered out in amongst the planting. Also, we add what we call our seasonal theme layers. And I'm pulling that term from Thomas Rayner's and Claudia West book, Planting in a Post-Wild World. The idea here is, is that you have sort of these waves of color that come in and out throughout the seasons, where we're kind of capitalizing on the idea of the stress tolerators early in the spring. So your daffodils, your grape hyacinths your tulips kind of coming up through that green mulch that you have growing on the ground. As the season progresses, other species start to come up in there. Maybe some of your echinacea, your coneflowers, and your asclepias, your milkweeds. As summer progresses, we start getting to phloxes, some maybe early sunflowers. And then as fall finally comes along, we then have our asters, maybe some winter interest from things like rose hips or other seed heads like baptisia seed heads, something on that line. The last layer that you put in is what you call the self-sower layer. This ruderal species, the idea is, is that at any point in time you have disturbance. Disturbance could be something came in the bed and dug, like boar, which we deal with here in East Texas, armadillos, which we deal with here in East Texas. Some plant falls over and kills everything underneath it. You have these basically openings that occur in a planting. You can then have these species germinate and grow quickly in that. Think about some of these ruderal pioneer species. For example, cardinal flower. Belia cardinalis, it's one that can germinate, come up quick in there. Also, some of your columbines can too. Gallardia, some of these species that germinate, grow, cover the soil very quickly. Then once the other perennial species start to sow in there to sort of heal it up, they kind of fade away. I just got back from the Perennial Plant Association meeting. We had a conference this year in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. 
Larry Weiner was up talking about how with naturalistic planting, everybody loves echinacea, right, Craig? Right. I haven't met a person yet who doesn't love echinacea and just how beautiful they are. Oh, yeah. He was talking about how when he goes on a site and sows echinacea, they'll plant echinacea in the whole field. Two or three years later, the echinacea is spectacular. It looks so good. It looks so great because those seeds that you started a few years ago have really had a chance to find purchase in the soil and start growing. Then usually around year four, year five, what's happened is, is that your grass species are starting to outcompete them. And so the number of them start to go down. Echinacea is a little bit of a ruderal species because it sets copious amounts of seed. They don't last as long as people want them to. Where you typically find echinacea popping back up right there along that woodland edge where there's just enough competition from the trees to cause some of those patches in the grass to die out. Those echinacea will then come in there and germinate and really continue to be in there. You'll still see them out in the grassland type areas. That's that idea of that self-sower layer, whether it's something like echinacea or a cardinal flower or galardia. The idea is, is that if a disturbance occurs, whether it's a plant dying or something digging, you're going to have something else come up there and germinate besides a weed. I'm trying to understand what species of seeds I would want to sow, or do I just want to get a general wildflower mix? That is a great question about how do you decide what species to put down. That is something that if a gardener is going to want to do this naturalistic planting approach, you can do it by seed or you can do it by plug. I'll go ahead and say that up front, that there's both approaches. People who do it by seed is great because it's cheap. The problem is, is, is that you've got to usually wait a little bit for those to establish. Other people prefer to do it by plugs, gallon plants, typically a little bit rare in those types because a lot of times the plugs are grown with deep root systems to allow them to establish quickly. Sometimes people will bring in gallon plants as well whenever they're sourcing. Whenever you're trying to develop your plant mix, a lot of times I like to do is I like to sit down and say, okay, what is my ground cover layer going to be? Because I've got to decide what's going to be able to grow on this site, whether it's dry, whether it's wet, whether it's acidic, whether it's alkaline, whether it's shaded, whether it's bright and sunny, sloped, whatever. You've kind of got to find some species that are going to cover that site. The idea is, is that you're trying to prevent those weeds from germinating. Even things that blow in like goldenrod as well, too, and really starting to take over. Then I start asking, okay, well, what do I want this site to do? Uh, how does it harmonize with the local landscape? Because I probably don't want to plant yuccas right up against a pond edge. Similarly, I probably don't want to put irises into a desert, xeric-type site. You also start asking questions about what harmonizes with the colors. How can you kind of view this site at different times of the day so that you maximize that? Love to see and go visit gardens because a lot of times what they'll do is they'll try to pair the colors with the house. If you've got like a lot of whites and grays, they'll try to pull whites and grays in the landscape. If you've got browns and maroons, they'll try to use those colors. That's kind of the question we start asking whenever we're deciding on what plants to choose is we come at it from a design art side, but we also come at it from an ecological side too. You start building in that plant list of saying, I need X amount of these structural plants to get me through the season so that that way it doesn't just look like I have some weedy mess out here. I make sure for seasonal theme layers, I want these three or four or five plants to really play off each other in the spring. I want these three or so plants to play off each other in the late spring, early summer. Same thing in the midsummer, late summer, and then into fall. That way you're kind of building this in. Last but not least, you add in that ruderal. Times that's just a couple things like maybe crimson clover, glardia, larkspurs, something along those lines that's going to so germinate quickly and sort of fill that space adequately. If you're looking to do these, my recommendation is try to find someone locally who is experienced a little bit ecological design. There's a lot of great plant lists out there as well, too, with native plant societies, as well as every state has an extension service that should have recommendations about drought-wise plants, water-wise plants, plants that are good for pollinators. What I start to do is I just start to build this massive list, use computers to put pictures of plants up and see, like, oh, you know, that Sclepius and that Gallardia are probably going to be blooming near the same time. And that orange and that yellow and red would look really good together. I'm going to put those two together. Whenever you're building a flora, you can either go out in nature and see what nature has done. Native plant gardens have go out and study all the native plants within a 50 mile radius and use those plants to develop a native plant garden. Other ones will say, okay, we're going to use any plants on the eastern part of the United States. We don't care if they're from North Carolina or Pennsylvania. We're still going to classify them as native, and we're going to build it from that. Other people say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take plants that I know that are native and good for pollinators, 
and good for beneficial insects and have positive ecological roles. I'm going to take and combine those together with plants that are not necessarily native from the U.S., but I know that they're not very harmful to the environment. They're not invasive, but yet they still have good, strong, lasting qualities in the landscape. They're very drought tolerant. They provide beautiful blooms. I'm going to build those into a flora that I can use in my garden. It's up to whoever wants to make a plant list. They just kind of have to pick and choose their own. My recommendation is don't overdo it. The smaller the area, because you hear people want to do like pocket prairie plantings or pocket meadow or pocket woodland plantings in the yard. My recommendation is keep it simple. Don't get too complex with your species, because if you do, you really start to lose some of that legibility of having that planting there. It starts to just kind of look like you just put a bunch of plants in together. Have a nice, consistent ground cover layer. Put a few plants into it that are going to give you structural interest. All things are going to last. Gardeners can walk around their yard, their communities, and just start making notes. What do I see in the spring? What do I see in the summer? What do I see in the fall? Oh, you know, I've noticed for all three of those seasons, I noticed sumac. Sumac is always present in the spring, summer, and fall. It's great for native insects and birds. So therefore, I'm going to use that as a structural plant. And then start paying attention, writing down ideas about the seasonal themes that you want to have going through your garden. That's where color choice really comes in. Some people really like purples and yellows or orange, reds, and yellows or blues and purples. That's up to them. You can even change it. You can have a planting in the spring that's fiery, hot orange and reds and yellows. And then as the summer moves on, you know, kind of make it more mellow into purples and blue, just as long as those colors kind of overlap. How do you maintain or manage the naturalistic plantings? That is another really good question. That is something that I have been trying to figure out how to do here in the Southeast, because we have a year-round growing season. Weeds are definitely one of the big issues that we deal with. My recommendation is to try to eliminate your weed base as much as you possibly can before you plant, because the weed bank there can be a problem. Ways to do this, you can go in and do soil solarization, you can do herbicide roundup applications, you can do frequent mowings and tillings to try to reduce the amount of weeds that are there. Other ways that I've seen people do, uh, like at Chanticleer, years ago, I saw that they had mulched around a bed and had not planted a single thing there. Two or three years later, they planted in it. The idea is, is that you're trying to reduce the number of weed pressure that's already there so that that way you have maybe in two or three years something ready to plant. Once you get it up and get it growing, this is where you're really going to have to watch it. We learned that here when we first did our first prototype plantings on campus because we planted a mixed diversity of things. Very quickly, we found out that we planted way too many competitors and had way too many plants that would try to outcompete each other. Kind of had to go in and edit those and take those out. The other way that we maintain them as well is at the end of the growing season, usually sometime around January, early February, we'll go in and we'll cut them to the ground. This is where that disturbance comes in. Go in, we'll get push mowers, or you can use weed eaters or any type of cutting device. I know some people who get a scythe and go out and just cut their naturalistic plantings down doing that. Other people say, I don't want to cut as much because I don't want to cut out the wasp and stuff that have laid eggs and the bees that are nesting in the stems of my plants. So sometimes what people do is they'll be selective. They'll mow certain parts of their yard, but leave other areas for those beneficial pollinators and beneficial insects that have laid eggs in those plant stems because they do overwinter that way. I know up at Brooklyn Bridge Park, one of the things they do is they just kind of go in and they just gently start cutting things back with loppers and let that detritus, that dead organic matter, just kind of fall to the ground. That way, they're not going in there and just shredding things totally. That's another way to manage it. Other people will go in and burn these naturalistic plantings. You have to do that within your own city's ordinances and best practices. Definitely have people check out on that. Throughout the growing season, you can go in and edit things that are looking rough or maybe need to be cut back. Up north, if you go up and see the Lurie Garden in Chicago, which, of course, Pete Adolph did a wonderful naturalistic planting there. If you go visit it in late July, early August, the Baptisia are still green and lush. Here in deep east Texas, our Baptisia have already turned brown. Their seed pods have turned black. Some places I'll leave them for winter interest, and other places I'll cut them down. That way, other things like Leatris and fall sunflowers can kind of come and erupt up through that. What do you believe the greatest obstacle to naturalistic planting being accepted by a good number of the people out there? I think that one of the biggest obstacles is the knowledge that I've been sharing and talking about how plants grow, because I think it's a shift in the way that we think about planting. 
as humans, we love to come in and colonize and take over an area and control it. With naturalistic planting, what we're doing is we're looking at nature and we're saying, I trust you. I trust that what I'm seeing in nature and the way that plants grow, I can bring into my garden and have a healthy, happy gardening ecosystem. Part of that too is, is, is that if you're going to have a naturalistic planting, you have to be prepared for things like snakes and other creatures that are going to start finding habitat within your garden. To be okay with things like caterpillars coming and eating on your plant, like monarch larvae. If we're planting milkweeds, we're going to have to accept the fact that we have to have those monarch larvae coming in there and eating on those plants. There's a lot of other species as well. We've got this butterfly species that if we did not have Baptisia at our house, we would not see it. Because we have Baptisia, we see it scattered around the landscapes. We welcome that, trying to figure out ways to live with nature and emulate it. My background is vegetable garden. I've been gardening since I was five years old. When I was reading about vegetable gardening, I learned that you put compost in the soil. You enrich the soil. You try to make the soil the best and most fertile it possibly can. With naturalistic planting, we're kind of flipping that on its head. For vegetable gardening, that's great if you want to enrich the soil and make it fertile because let's think about what vegetables are. They're all rural. Pretty much almost every vegetable out there, so maybe like asparagus and strawberries, pretty much every single one of them is going to grow, flower, set seed, and die. We want that soil to be rich and fertile for them to grow because we want them to grow as well as they possibly can. With naturalistic planting, we're really trying to look to nature for more design inspiration. We're wanting to use stress as an asset. That way we can grow a wider diversity of plants in our gardens, welcome more biodiversity into our gardens as well. I think that the knowledge that people have about using the plants and how to use them appropriately issue with quote-unquote unwelcome creatures, unexpected creatures. Because even here at the university, we've had these beautiful plantings and people have been like, oh, that looks like a snake nest. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think weed management is another thing that people struggle with. I'm kind of taking a hybrid approach at my house where I still do use mulch, but I use it sparingly. Really try to use more green ground cover species because for me in the spring, in the wintertime, we have a lot of open gaps in my garden beds where sunlight hits it and I get hembit and chickweed to germinate. What I do is I try to go in there and maybe do some disturbance or do some light mulching to try to control that. Once all the vegetation gets going, hopefully it kind of blocks it all out so that the sunlight can hit that. A fourth thing that I'll add is plant availability. We have all these incredible plants that you see out in nature, and yet a lot of them are still not available in nurseries. People have had ideas about that, maybe selling 50 cell packs of plant a pocket prairie or plant a pocket woodland meadow or plant a pocket wetland edge. I think we're going to continue seeing more things along that. And I think the desire is there for having more naturalistic planting that benefits local ecology. What do you wish people would do differently when designing, building, or growing a garden or landscape? I wish people were more patient. I think sometimes people rush into gardening. I think that they want a garden really quickly in the spring. They overwhelm themselves. They jump into it too fast, and they very quickly realize they've got too much on their plate. And they have to very quickly make some decisions. A lot of times that decision may be, oh, I'm a horrible gardener and I'm just going to give up. I see this in students too as well. I really hope that people are patient with themselves as well as patient getting their plants established because that's one of the things that makes plants different from most everything else on this earth is is that we can't go from plant to product in one day. We can't go from plant to garden in one day. It takes time for these things to develop. It's a nurturing, it's caring to me, that's the beauty of gardening is, is that just like I'm sure you have close relationships and friends with people in your life, Craig, you know, the things that we value the most in life are the things that we invest time in. People can't go out and just create a garden in a weekend. It's going to be something that they're going to have to patiently tend to and take care of and make smart decisions sort of step by step. If you go out there and just do it all in one weekend, try to rush to get as much as you possibly can, you're going to come back in two weeks and it's going to be weedy. That may be overwhelming for people. I really wish people were more patient with themselves as far as giving themselves grace as they learn how to become better gardeners. I hope people can learn to be patient with their plants growing as well, too. Giving their garden time to develop. This idea of watching a space and letting it grow and develop and maybe not jumping in so fast to make changes. What's the largest garden myth you feel needs to be busted? One myth that I encountered a few years ago, was this idea that we need to start planting trees in square holes. Have you heard of this, Craig? (laughs) No. (laughs) 
This is an article that came out. It was in a UK paper, and it was written by someone who worked for the Royal Horticulture Society. Pretty much, he made the case that we should plant trees in square holes. Me being a scientist, I'm like, this is really fascinating because the case that he made was if you plant trees in square holes instead of circular holes, what will happen is, is that when the roots hit the edge of the square hole that they are planted into, even after you filled the soil back in and stuff, you know, so you've got this loose soil. Once the roots hit the corners of this planting hole, they're then going to basically grow out into the soil because they've hit a sharp edge. One of the first things that came to mind is, is that I've grown plenty of plants in square pot and I've seen roots grow right around the corners. The other thing too is, is that I paid attention to geometry. I know that triangle is half the area of a square. I myself the question, why don't you just plant a tree in a triangle? Potentially half the volume you'd have to dig out. I emailed the guy, I would love to see some research or something on this topic because I can't find anything. I'm going through literature. If the Royal Horticulture Society has this data and has this information, share it with us. It's having a Jerry Maguire moment. Show me the data. Show me the data. That's what I want to see. Wrote this blog post that said, no, you should not plant trees in square holes, and it's 26% more work for you. Did the math. If you dig a square instead of a circle, same diameter, you're going to be digging out more soil shared it and it got a lot of tractions and stuff on social media. It's like the most viral post I've ever written. Still get emails today saying like, thank you for writing this and sort of busting this myth <laughs> that we should even start trying to do this. Still waiting on the data. I will say this. I did find an article from 1995. It was from Texas A&M. What they did is they looked at planting shape configuration for a planting hole. They did squares. They did cylinders. They did stars, which that was my other question. Like, why don't you do sharper angles like a star? They found statistically that there was really no significant difference planting trees in different shaped holes. The takeaway there is dig the hole. It's much more important to think about breaking up the root ball. Much more important to think about providing mulch around the tree to kill off the grass because Bartlett Arboretum, where my colleague Greg Page works near Charlotte, North Carolina, he was telling us that they did a sort of an unofficial experiment. They planted trees with like no mulch and then mulch 10 or 20 feet out and then mulch 20 or 40 feet out, something like that. The ones that they mulched significantly around were much, much larger than the ones that had no mulch. Why? Because going back to these ideas of competition and competitors, the grass was actually competing for a lot of the water. To me, those type things are more important than planting hole configuration. Yeah, yeah. What do you see as the future of gardening? Oh, man, I am an eternal optimist. I think that being a university professor and seeing the constant passion, energy, and excitement that our students have, it really keeps me going and keeps me energized. I hear a lot of people who are concerned about the horticulture industry because they're worried about how many jobs are open. They're worried about university programs getting merged into other university programs. For example, horticulture getting merged in with agriculture or with botany or maybe even just going away. I see a lot of promise because this group of students loves plants. They love nature. I don't know exactly what has driven them to do that. I don't know if it's the fact they've been cooped up inside so much, especially like with the pandemic. I don't know if it's that they're longing for something deeper and more permanent than online lives. For me, I see the future of horticulture as being something where we don't have as many gatekeepers, that more people are doing horticulture on the side and having fun projects. Internet has definitely made that better because now we have this vast knowledge of how to grow plants. Pretty much people look up how to learn about anything from A to Z. I also see sustainability. I see a lot of interest in that as well, too, from finding alternatives to potting soil to finding alternatives for plastic pots plastic labels? How can we start growing more plants locally instead of having them shipped in? See more sustainability. That also goes with the naturalistic planting approach too, that if you can plant a planting and then have it basically look exact same way roughly year to year with very minimal maintenance, that's where naturalistic planting came from was Germany. They were trying to figure out ways to grow plants with minimal input, minimal effort, but get maximum bloom and appearance. We're going to see more naturalistic plantings going forward as well, too. What is your earliest garden memory? My earliest garden memory is a very fun one. I have a couple that immediately come to mind. One is, is that when we moved into our house in Tennessee, I was about three or four years old because my sister had just been born. 
we move into the house and there's this field of canola out beside it and it hasn't been harvested yet. And there's a photograph of me standing out in the middle of it. Just remember being out in the middle of this yellow field, just immersed in this. And I was just so joyous and happy. Many of my early memories as well, too, come from my great grandfather. His name was E.E. Conley. He was a wonderful, kind, gentle soul. My parents both worked days. They would take us up to my great-grandfather's house as well as my grandmother's house. So his daughter lived with him to kind of help take care of him. They lived in the same house. My sister and I would go up there, and he would go out work in his garden. He would push the tiller, would follow behind him, raking out our footprints. I have such good memories working with him out in the garden from learning not to pick okra if you don't have long sleeves on, or not to run through sweet corn if you don't have a shirt on as a five-year-old kid, because <laughs> you'll get cut up real quick, to eating tomatoes and eating fresh corn and eating watermelons with him. He could tell that I loved it so much that he actually created a garden for me. It's really from him and, and my parents too. Uh, they were very, very encouraging of this early love of plants. I have a photograph of me five years old hoeing corn and tomatoes out beside our house having a good family that encouraged this passion of mine are good memories that I'll take with me the rest of my life. Was that the seed that germinated to leading you to decide to pursue the horticulture profession? Yes, it definitely was. I would like to segue for a second and say that as a youngster, I also love meteorology. I've always been a naturalist at heart. I love learning about the natural world. I love learning about weather and I love learning about geology and just how it all works together. And actually, as a young kid, I thought I was going to be a meteorologist because I didn't realize you could have a career in plants. Looking back many years later, now that I'm a college professor, I've realized what I loved about weather people on TV is, is that they were experts sharing knowledge with others. I think that's what I was really gravitating toward. Because whenever I went up and visited weather stations and stuff, I saw that pretty much all you did was sit in, inside on a computer all day long. I would watch the weather station reports, and then I would go to school the next day, and I kid you not, the teachers and students would ask me, like, what's the upcoming weather? And I would give them, like, the weather reports for what was coming. I've definitely always had this sharing ability and the ability to talk to people. I would say that the idea and the seed for pursuing a horticulture career came when I was 14. I was sitting on the back porch with my mom. She opened up the newspaper. There was a little nose note there that said, new master gardener class forming in Northwest Tennessee. My mom was like, oh, look, there's a master gardener class forming here. I know you love gardening. Why don't you consider taking this? And I was like, yeah, sure. It sounds interesting. Well, the problem was, is, is that I didn't have a driver's license because I'm 14. My mom drove me up to take this master gardener class. My dad worked days, so he worked like 3 to 11 at a local factory. Mom would take me to this class once a week. It was funny. Early on, people thought that she was the one taking the class. She was just dragging me along. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, quickly they found out that no, that I was a serious plant nerd, and I was very interested in this. Through that class, I met Carol Reese. Carol Reese has been a wonderful friend and a wonderful mentor in my life. She, of course, was a horticulturist in West Tennessee. She is retired, and we are still close. Uh, love talking to Carol. Through Carol, I learned that you could have careers in horticulture. Carol introduced me to another gentleman in our local area whose name is Jimmy Williams. And Jimmy Williams is a person who will tell you that he has learned horticulture through the School of Hard Knocks. He basically has learned it all from scratch. He went over and did garden tours in England, came black, planted every plant he saw in England, and quickly, instead of having a garden, he had a label cemetery in front of his house. I started going to Jimmy's once a month in college. I started learning what the plants were and how they grew, and I take notes and take photographs to try to learn. That was about 2006. Jimmy told me that there was this organization called the Perennial Plant Association. He said, they've got this scholarship, and you should apply for it because you get to attend the symposium that they have every year. And I applied for it, Craig, and I got it. Uh, In 2007, I got to go to the Perennial Plant Association meeting at Columbus, Ohio. I met so many bigwigs in the world of horticulture. I met Stephanie Cohen, the perennial diva. I met Dan Himes. He works with Terra Nova, introducing amazing plants all across the world. I've also made friends that I keep to this day, like Janet Draper at the Smithsonian, and also Jason Reeves. You know, he's based in Jackson, Tennessee, and Troy Martin out of Tennessee, and Robin Brown. I made so many lifelong friends from that conference. What they did is that they started telling me things, like Jason Reeves said, 
you need to go do an internship. Working with Stephanie Cohen, I was able to get an internship up at the Scott Arboretum. That's where Andrew Bunting was based at the time. He was curator. And so I met him and he started giving me advice about how to have a good career. Stephanie was the one who gave me advice about how to pursue graduate school. Through her, I was able to find my way to NC State. My advisors, Brian Whipker and Paul Nelson, had incredible opportunities did really amazing research at NC State working on plant nutrition, traveled to 10 different countries while at NC State. I just listened to your episode with Bryce Lane on managing good garden soil. He was another wonderful mentor of mine. Now I am here at SFA teaching students. I say all those names, not to name drop. I could name drop more (laughs) if I wanted to. I say all those names to say, I am not the result of just me. Just like people tending to plants, I've had so many people who have invested time in my life and cared about me to help propel me to where I am today. Only thing that I can do, Craig, is pay that forward. That's why I love teaching students is is that I have now the opportunity to cultivate these minds and these passions and careers that people in my past helped me to cultivate. (laughs) That's wonderful. What is your most valuable garden mistake? My most valuable garden mistake of late has been planting everything into soil without doing a soil test. I know, I know, I know. Don't need anybody come after me because (laughs) if you read a garden book, if you go to a garden class, if you do any of these things, people always tell you the first thing you do, soil test. Well, let me tell you, whenever you just bought a house for the first time and you've got a hundred plants in containers and you're tired of watering them and it's August, the first thing you're going to do is throw them in the soil, soil test or not. I'm just like, I'm tired of watering these things. I'm ready to get this stuff in the soil. So I started a trial bed at my house. Noticed that the plants were not establishing very well. Like things that I thought should be growing just fine were not establishing well because growing up in Tennessee, never had soil issues. You do a soil test, pH 6.5. Raleigh, North Carolina, same thing. Not as many soil issues there either. Plant stuff in the soil, grow just fine. But in East Texas, our soils are very, very acidic. When I did a soil test, 4.2. That explained why my blueberries were growing great because blueberries, they're in the zellia family. They really like to have more acidic soils because they have a higher iron requirement. Low pH soils allows iron to be more available. Other things were struggling to root because basically when soil pH gets that low, aluminum from the soil begins to break off and become available in soil solution. Aluminum soil solution is toxic. It basically causes the roots to die. One of the things I started doing is amending my soil with limestone. Very quickly, plant growth improved drastically to the point where things look great. That was a valuable garden mistake that I learned. (laughs) And I know, I know, don't everybody come after me. It was definitely one of those things. It's like, yeah, the books are right. You should do a soil test. (laughs) Especially on a new garden. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I just took it for granted. Like we pulled up the grass is lush, you know, the, the plants and stuff all look lush. And I'm like, oh, this is great. But the thing is, is again, going back to these plant growth strategies, it was all species that was adapted to the site. And so they had no problem growing there, but other species did. So yes, valuable lesson learned. What are your future plans for your garden? My future plans are that I really need to do something with the front of the house. My first goal whenever I got to the house was to fence in an area. Craig, one of the most humbling experiences you'll ever have is walk out in your backyard one morning and ask the question, who ran a tractor through my backyard? (laughs) And then quickly realize that it wasn't a person. It was instead a herd of boar. We have boar, we have armadillos, we have deer, we have raccoons, we have gophers. So my first goal with the garden was to erect a patch, basically a area that has a double fence surrounding it. Outer fence, I grow blackberries on. The inner fence will have muscadines right now, just have kind of uh, netting, wiring to keep things out. The idea is, is that the outer fence is strong enough to keep the boars and armadillos out. The inner fence prevents deer from doing the double jump. That was kind of the first goal to get that going because I wanted to have an area that was protected, that I could plant plants in to trial and evaluate while I was learning the site and learning about soil acidity. Since then, we planted some orchard beds where we have peaches. We picked our first peach crop this year, which was just glorious. I've been doing more naturalistic plantings around the house, but I think the next big project is either the front of the house doing some naturalistic plantings up there. I'm thinking again, kind of having it be like, an open grassland, woodland type space, have maybe uh, some grasses and have some 
sumac there. I just planted a tupelo this past spring, wildfire tupelo that has that nice red foliage color to it, sort of an anchor plant there on the corner of the house. This is where I was talking about earlier design ideas. Live in a log cabin here in East Texas. Never dreamed in a thousand years I'd live in a log cabin, but we do. It is fairly sunny around the site. What I want to do with the log cabin, since it's got a lot of browns and orangey tones, kind of playing off that with yellows, oranges, and reds, sort of bring out that color. And we've also, we're wanting to do a patio on the back as well, too. Maybe at first, just kind of do like a mulch area with some planted beds. And then once we get some more money, eventually come in and do like a gravel area there for walkways and tables for outdoor entertaining. So that's kind of the two next big projects I have coming up. What's your favorite plant this week? I just learned at the Perennial Plant Association meeting that we had last week that Rebecca American Gold Rush is going to be the 2023 Perennial Plant of the Year. Right now, it is in full bloom at my house. It looks spectacular. It was bred by Brent Horvath at Intrinsic Perennial Gardens. It is a selection of our Black-Eyed Susan. It's a little bit smaller, a little bit more diminutive than the typical species you find on roadsides. However, it is just such heavy bloomer. It's been blooming now for several weeks at our house, and it's going to keep going for a few more weeks as well. So I would say that's probably my plan of the week. Would you like to brag any more about your students? I would love to. (laughs) (laughs) Here at Stephen F. Austin State University, I oversee a student botanic garden. It's called The Plantery, and it was a name for this place that the students that I came up with. One of the things that we have learned by talking to other colleagues is is that people of our age, my age, uh, and, and younger, don't respond as well to the word gardening. To us, gardening is what grandparents did. For us, have all kinds of terms like plant daddies or plant mamas or plant ladies. Plants, that's kind of that term. So instead of calling ourselves a garden here, we just called ourselves the plantery. The idea is, is that we have our micro firm sprout. This is where we grow vegetables throughout the year, about to start sowing our fall crops like our kales, our cabbages, our Brussels sprouts, our collards carrots, peas. A lot of those over winter just fine for us here in East Texas. It's really if we have only an extreme winter where we go from like 71 day down to 18 the next that we'll run into issues with some of those dying out. In the spring, we'll of course grow tomatoes and peppers. We also grow a copious amount of cut flowers. The idea is, is that with our micro farm sprout, students are able to take plants from seed to sale. We grow the plants, they cultivate the plants, they harvest the plants, And then we have a small farmer's market here behind the agriculture building where students are able to sell those products. We also have our grow houses. These are greenhouses and poly houses that students grow in where a lot of our classes grow annuals, as well as we're about to start ramping up our perennial production and woody production with renovating our nursery pad. And then, of course, we have our teaching garden. These are areas where students can do colorful designs. We like to do prototype plantings to try to learn what we're doing, sort of this idea, uh, Jim Collins's bullets before cannonballs. Before you launch into a really big project, do a few small projects first to learn, then you can kind of make a bigger shot. We've done some prototype naturalistic plantings, learn from those to be able to do others. We also did a gravel garden, what I was talking about earlier at the beginning of the episode out here, where we planted some plants into four or five inches of gravel. Some of those work great, like our asters, several of our native grasses. Others did not do too well. Our bog sage looked great at first, but then it died out. Why? Because it was too stressful a site, got too dry. We're still learning from that. Echinacea did great. Some of the best echinacea that we've grown here on campus has been in that bed. Those learning gardens are opportunities for students to come in, overhaul, change out, modify, do designs in. One of my goals this year is now that we've been able to increase the space that we have available to us, is to now start getting on a one-year rotation. For example, classes this fall will be doing designs for classes in the spring and next fall as well, too. The idea here is is that we're starting to feed forward into the future. That way, when those classes start, we're not scrambling to figure out how many plants do we need to grow, how many plants do we need to plant. It's all right there, ready to go. Those classes will continue to design and do things for future classes, too. This is one of the most unique horticulture programs, I think, that I've encountered in the country because we have the classes here inside the ag building, and then 30 seconds later, we're right out back in the plantry. The idea is is that students get the hands-on education out back, doing things, touching plants, engaging with them, while they're also getting the classroom learning here. We definitely have a very hands-on program trying to learn and teach students about how to be the best learners they can be. Have you seen an influx of new students with all the new interest in gardening? I think they said they had 20 million new gardeners over the pandemic. Isn't that exciting? Yeah. 
our Hort Club is very vigorous. We constantly have new people coming in interested in that. Some of them decide to go on and pursue horticulture careers. Other people type my classes just to try to learn how to grow plants better. Still hear from them in future years as well, too. Whenever I started here, our enrollment was down a little bit. And within about two years, it had increased by about 60, 70%. It's kind of stabilized now. Our ACT program here has about 400 students registered in that. Of that, about 35 usually are core horticulture students that we have. It's not too big that we don't know everyone, and it's not too small. People just kind of don't feel like they get a lot out of it. It's kind of this sweet Goldilocks size that we have working with here. Just right. (laughs) Just right. (laughs) I've been thoroughly enjoying your podcast called The Plantastic Podcast. What inspired you to do that? Thank you. To be honest, Craig, I love listening to podcasts. I love what I learned from them. One of my core essences of who I am is I love to share knowledge. I love sharing knowledge in the classroom with students. I love sharing knowledge out in the plantry with students as well. I love giving garden talks all across the country as well. For me, it was just another avenue to help to share what I learned. The other thing too is is that in listening to podcasts, I get all these great ideas. One of my favorite podcasts is The Tim Ferriss Show. On an episode of Tim's podcast, he had on Scott Adams, who of course created and drew Dilbert, the cartoon. One of the things that Scott talked about was whenever he pursues a project, he comes at it from a systems approach. He asked the question, if I start this project and it fails, will I have learned something from it? That's one of the things that I really took into this podcast was it was an opportunity for me to not only cultivate myself, but also to cultivate others as well, too. I could have a one-on-one conversation with someone who was intelligent, passionate about the plant world, have an opportunity to learn from them, and then also take what I have learned in an audio recording and make that available to a wider audience. I've been so blessed so far to have a very positive reaction to the podcast. I just posted episode eight this past week. For me, it's just been a wonderful opportunity to sort of pursue and learn. Back in graduate school, I loved going to garden talks at the J.C. Ralston Arboretum in North Carolina and Raleigh. Love going to conferences where you'd bring in garden lectures. Now fortunate that I get to do that too, go give these lectures. For me, that's what the podcast has continued. This one-on-one sit-down type environment with a learning from other horticulturists. I also really love to get into the weeds on the podcast. I like to ask questions like, what are your daily rituals? What are small things that you do that really help to push your craft forward? Because I'm interested in the minutia. You know, I know that we've all got techniques and strategies that we use, just like I'm sure you do. You know, we were talking before we started recording about what type of podcast technology we use. To me, those small little things and small little changes that we can learn about life could have massive amplification things, whether it's how we take notes or how we start seeds or, you know, how we stick cuttings. All these things may seem small and trivial, but they can really become amplified if we know how sort of to best do them. Yeah, I equate it to learning on steroids. It's been, (laughs) it's it's amazing. Like you say, talking with people and what you learn there, it's just, it's amazing to me. Yeah, it sure is. I agree. Now, your website's Meristem. This is a quite valuable resource. Could you tell us about that? I sort of house everything under this idea of like Meristem horticulture. Out of Marisim Horticulture, I have my blog, which is Plant Ed. The idea there is is that I'm trying to do everything that I can to educate people with my blog. I'm pretty good about doing it most weeks. Some weeks, because I've got conferences or something going on, I may not be able to do a post. The idea is, is that usually about once a week, I'm writing a post and sharing it with an audience. And it could be anything from what I'm doing here at the university to something I've learned recently about plants, to here's a plant that I've seen out in the wild and really want to talk to you about it, to my wife and I just got back from a trip to England about a month ago. We went in July. I wrote a post on an evening at Great Dexter. Of course, Great Dexter is one of the most famous gardens in the world. Talked about things that I learned interacting with Fergus Garrett, the head gardener and uh, director there. And so the idea is, is that I'm constantly trying to share what I'm learning. But at the same time, it also keeps me on my toes because I enjoy writing. Back when the Master Gardener program was going on, I had a newsletter that I sent out like once a month about here's everything I've learned about in the world of gardening. I was like 14, 15, 16 doing that. 
this idea of sharing knowledge with others has definitely been something in my core. The other thing, too, is, is that I think writing helps me understand better as well, too. When I write ideas down and I have a chance to really think things out, it really helps me understand better what I know, as well as where there are gaps in my thinking as well. Part of the reason why I was able to articulate Grimes Triangle so well to you is I've written about it and I've thought about it a lot. Along with the blog, I also send out a weekly newsletter. With that newsletter, I incorporate things that I have learned as well too. It may be a scientific article that I came across that week. It may be a really interesting article in a newspaper that I read. The idea here is is that I'm constantly kind of pushing the limit on what I know as well as what my readers know as well too. Always interesting and fascinating to me about what people email me back and say, oh, I really enjoyed that article or, oh, I really learned something from that. Not necessarily just my blog post. It's kind of funny because you can look at analytics on this stuff. There's many weeks where the thing that I wrote is not the thing that people clicked on the most. And that's okay because the whole goal here is, is that we're all learning something from me cultivating this. The other thing too is, is that as an educator and as a professor, it also keeps me on my toes. I'm always engaging with new information, new media, and trying to push the limits on what I know, as well as what students and the public knows as well, too. The other thing, too, Craig, about doing the podcast, the newsletter, and the blog is is that my core philosophy is keep growing. I even have hashtag keep growing on my website. This idea is, is that when we look at plants, they are continually growing and using things available to them to grow and make the environment a better place. They're providing habitat. They're providing food for organisms. They're nourishing the space around them. That's what I really enjoy doing as an educator. I enjoy nourishing and providing an environment for people to learn around me. That's the joy that I have. And so I would just encourage all your listeners out there to keep growing, keep pushing the limits on everything that they're doing. Ask questions, make mistakes, just like we learned from the Magic School Bus and Miss Frizzle, to really continue trying to learn about how we can be the best gardeners and plant growers out there. Jared, tell us how people might connect with you. People can connect with me on my website, MaristemHorticulture.com. I named it Maristem because a Maristem on plants is a region of active growth. And that's my goal as an educator, is to help people grow. People can also find other places that I'm online through the website, like Instagram and also Facebook, as well as contacting me through email. So the website, Maristem Horticulture, is the best way to find me. This has been Episode 71, Success with Naturalistic Plantings, with Jared Barnes, Ph.D. Thank you, Dr. Jared. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.